Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky, and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. And welcome to another week from Wisconsin. We have our full panel, which means Claire Zauke, our Healthcare Director, is with us. Claire, good to have you. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, it's good to have you. It's a sunny day. We record on Thursday mornings. We're all safely in our house because we're still heavily quarantined. And I'll I'll let everybody know I actually have COVID. I tested positive uh, between our shows. Uh, and so, yes, we're still all recording safely from our homes. Robert Craig is also with us. Robert, executive director. Uh, happy inauguration week to our digital and radio audiences. That is correct. That is what we're going to talk about, Robert. We're going to get started uh, talking about it was a historic week. Uh, obviously, uh, we had the inauguration of our 46th president, Joe Biden, and of, of, of course, Vice President Harris, uh, extraordinarily historic uh, 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 vice president. I am going to ask both of you for just your immediate uh, thoughts uh, on the historic moment, but then we are going to dive into, want to talk about immigration right away. The, the president got immediately busy, uh, and we're going to talk about that. Also, want to let everybody know we will be joined uh, by a few guests later in the show. Uh, Kirk Bankstad's going to join us. He is the owner of the Manaqua Brewing Company and has a new super PAC that's making a lot of noise in the North uh, Woods. And so we're going to talk to Kirk later in the show. Also, we're going to be joined by Isaiah Holmes, who's doing amazing, amazing journalism uh, at the Wisconsin Examiner around policing in our uh, communities. Uh, he'll join us to talk more about what is going on in Wauwatosa and also to briefly discuss uh, the city of Milwaukee flipping on some federal resources for police officers so panel, let's start though. Got to talk about uh, the inauguration of Joe Biden. Uh, Claire, I want to get your immediate thoughts on the the historic day. I guess it would yesterday since we record on Thursday, Wednesday. Claire. Yeah, I think the first thing that I <clears throat> was struck by was just the the difference in this the tone of this celebratory, you know, historic. Uh, traditional event that took place at the Capitol and what took place just a couple weeks ago on June 6th in the in the same building and um, how I'm sure that there are um, window panes and door panels that are still uh, in need of repair um, after the attack on the Capitol um, and how and and now you know we have this this event this inauguration that sort of you know symbolizes hopefully a fresh start and moving forward. Um, and that was very much the message of Joe Biden's speech. He didn't talk policy at all, really, in his inaugural speech. It was very much about um, him trying to calm the temperatures of the of the nation and bring people together. Um, and, you know, I think unity is a is a lovely aspirational message. Um, it doesn't feel necessarily realistic right now, um, especially when so many of us are, are still yearning for <clears throat> for justice and, and and calling out the the communities that um, did things like let it, you know, attacks on the Capitol and oppose racial justice. But but I understand why why, you know, President Biden, oh, that feels so good to say um, why President <laughs> Biden <laughs> um, would want to would want to have that tone. Absolutely. Robert, your thoughts. I know you're into hugs. Um, your thoughts on this uh, historic day? 
Well, it was tremendously refreshing, obviously, to have this, to have everything about it compared to what we've just experienced. And I have to tell you, uh, as someone who, I'm not joking, really does have a PhD in rhetoric, that I've read all the major, uh, the great and the near great and the good inaugural addresses and studied them. And it was an excellent inaugural address, just from a technical standpoint. And the uh, main speechwriter gets a whole ton of credit. But you got to remember, a speechwriter is selected by um, by the president and uh, by now President Biden. And a speechwriter is um, also is sort of writing for the candidate or for the elected leader that they're writing for there. You can see them as a nonfictional playwright. And so it does attempt to express Biden's views. I think it does it very well. It actually uses a lot of the, it kind of like a, uh, some of the, like a Quentin Tarantino movie and there are constant references to other inaugurals, but you have to have read those inaugurals to see the reference. So that's going on in the text too. Uh, but it was pitch perfect as far as not only unity, which is obvious, and a lot of pundits have said it needed to preach unity, but it named just enough of the problems and what's really going on. Uh, in order to warrant what he's going to do. It also was forward-looking. And that's just the American character. Americans don't like to look back. They look to be positive and look forward. So it talked about what we're going to do about crises, not who did what when. It didn't even mention Donald Trump, which seems fair given that Donald Trump won't mention him. He probably would have if Donald Trump had been civil. Uh, so I thought it was a great day, but I also would caution, and people can Turn off uh, their sound if they just want positive thoughts this week, given all the negative oh, come thoughts. come on, Robert. Some people are wired that come way, on. but I also... They come here for a little dose of Dr. Craig. Made a point of watching Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity because the, uh, you know, the I, I went back and forth and checked out what was going on in the actual, uh, you know, uh, virtual inaugural celebration uh, and see Tom Hanks and all of that. But still, um, that was, and that was a bit over the top. But in addition to making fun of how over top the media was about, about ooh and eyeing, uh, they are saying the same stuff, the same misinformation that the Democrats are having a war on facts, that the Democrats want to censor everyone, conservatives, uh, and that this is, uh, and this is some sort of jihad against, uh, uh, good Americans. It was awful and atrocious, and that was to a huge audience. So we have not solved the fundamental problem. There's a lot to contest and contend with. And part of it is just this malignant, not fact-driven uh, stuff that Biden critiqued in his inaugural very effectively. So one of the best ways one can start to go at things is to get busy and get to work. And President Biden wasted absolutely no time. It was an extremely busy day. And not only did Biden uh, release us and it did this a few days early uh, with much uh, good, good press, a recovery bill. Uh, and before we talk more about that, in addition, there were a number of executive orders uh, by the time you listen to this and Today, there'll be more. I'm going to be close to 30 executive orders around a number of things. But Claire, I wanted you uh, to, get, to get your thoughts. One of the things that he is immediately moving on and putting a tremendous amount of focuses on immigration reform, which has been a just a longstanding area where there's been complete gridlock uh, and 
absolute desperate need uh, for for movement. Claire, your thoughts on uh, what the president is rolling out? Yeah, I was really happy to see him get to work on what is functionally day zero <laughs> of his presidency. Um, and, I, you know, it's it's the benefit of having somebody who's been in the building before and been so close to the to the office before. Um, you know, he didn't need to go through all of the, you know, let's get the tour and uh, meet everybody and find out what everybody does. Right. I mean, he could just walk in and start working and I think that's that's just exactly what our country needed needs at this moment to a great extent um, to somebody who who understands the job well enough that they can just start cleaning up Trump's mess. And so uh, he did a number of things um, like sign a slew of 15, 17 uh, executive orders and everything from, you know, covid and climate change to um, immigration. Um, But something that was a bit of a surprise to me was that he laid out a a really comprehensive immigration reform bill um, immediately that he is going to support and try to advance in Congress um, that includes paths for uh, citizenship. And um, this is something that folks in the immigration reform community have been calling for for a long time. Um, And uh, I did not expect it to be one of the first bills, maybe the first bill that he rolled out. Um, and so it's it is really wonderful and surprising, in my opinion, to see. So this bill the, <clears throat> called the U.S. Citizenship Act would enable undocumented people to apply for temporary legal stat- status um, with the ability to apply for green cards after five years if they passed uh, criminal and national security background checks, pay taxes, et cetera, which we know that um, undocumented immigrants do, and as well as enable dreamers and other types of um, immigrant workers like immigrant farm workers to hold green cards immediately. And then, you know, once folks have green cards and pass additional background checks and Um, do the normal citizenship steps, then they can apply for citizenship, I believe, in years down the road. It also changes words and laws and our laws from like alien to non-citizen, which I think is a refreshing change of language. And um, as Robert would tell you, rhetoric means something, our words mean things. And so I think updating language is, is worth noting. So yeah, I was really excited that we have a president who hit the ground running. Yeah, it was it was definitely noticed. Uh, there has been a lot of reporting around this, and let's just say it's refreshing because this is a critical part of the coalition that helped elect this president and that is actually changing this country. And we need to make sure that their needs are put and centered. Uh, in this uh, in in this administration. With that, we got to take a break. When we come back, um, there's much more we could talk about around the inauguration, but we actually need to talk about some things that are happening in the state because uh, we got a busy show. But you are listening to the Battleground Wisconsin, where Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin, where Citizen Action. We spent some time talking about the inauguration, obviously historic, and Claire, appreciate uh, the do- a little deeper dive on some of the immigration stuff, but there's a number of things that are happening here in the state that uh, we must talk about. And one of them, Robert, I'm going to ask you to take the lead on this. Um, there's been a lot happening around uh, the COVID vaccination plan and COVID plans and Uh, We are expanding to 65 and up, which is a huge portion of the population and certainly uh, folks who've been impacted, but wanted to talk to you about the inclusion and 
almost didn't happen of uh, a number of really critical workers, including people we have been talking about, meat packers and grocery workers and uh, teachers. Robert? Thanks, Matt. I'm not sure about teachers. Uh, they may have been not included as well because original press reports were just people, everyone over 65. But there were, I know for a fact there were a number of frontline workers in the line of fire, like grocery workers, like meatpacking workers, uh, manufacturing workers generally who have been deemed essential, who were not included. And that not only risked them, but it risked their families. And uh, leaders in organized labor made their concerns heard, and it was changed. So that's good, but that that even was necessary really concerns me about what is going on in the Department of Health Services. And we know that the acting secretary has gone to D.C., so we have the acting secretary now, who's Governor Doyle's former acting secretary, and I think is very good. Uh, I, I Karen Timberlake, I had a good experience with her, so hoping we can clean things up. But this Robert, is very problematic. But this is an excellent point. I'm glad you raised this. This is exactly why workers need or to, need to have unions, right? Workers' interests are not always front and center. And if you're organized, right, you have the opportunity to have collective action. And so this is a really, again, just yet another important point why uh, we need uh, workers to have a right to a union. And so, Robert, there's a little bit more that I want you to talk about. COVID related uh, here in the state. And that is, we've spent a lot of time talking about schools, been very supportive of leading with science and making sure that um, our schools follow good science and have been all over districts who have been making bad decisions. Um, but Robert, there's this new COVID strain, uh, which is everyone's heard about that is spreading around the country. And you have some thoughts around this as it relates to Wisconsin schools. And certainly we know there's going to be a push to reopen. Well, there is. And, uh, and, and it's coming from a lot of progressive parents, to be honest. And what's missing is making it safe to do so, because you're not only risking uh, educators, support staff, administrators, but their whole families. Okay. And really, we don't pay them to be Marines and risk their lives that way. Uh, we don't. We don't respect them at that level either as a society, not me as a society. And so the new strain that may be the dominant strain by March in the U.S. and is already started in Great Britain, and there are other new strains developing too, not only spreads more easily, it spreads substantially more easy among kids and young people. In fact, it may be the dominant mode of transmission of this new strain. And in Western Europe, they are reclosing the schools because of this. And here, it's crickets. It's not even being discussed, including by our Department of Health Services. So I'm hoping that now that we have an actual Center for Disease Control back, that the Biden administration will weigh in. But really, guys, these are unforced errors, and it's unethical. Now, if you, we can have a discussion about how much force you'd use with school boards, but you got to put out the information and have clear standards of what would be safe. I think you need to have actual regulations and mandates because we're talking about life and death issues here. And there's a real question now as to whether the vaccine race, which thankfully uh, uh, Joe Biden and his administration is really ramping up, will be, may not beat the new strain. 
And so we, we're to race against this new strain right now. And there are other new strains coming from Brazil, from South Africa, et cetera. Claire? Um, yeah. So building on what Robert said, um, first of all, a little piece of hope. Um, Joe Biden is President Biden hoo-hoo, um, is signing uh, another slate of executive orders. Um, I think all of them 10 about um, COVID response today. And one of them is authorizing the Defense Production Act, which people have been calling for all year. Um, or all last year, I guess, um, to to help increase the production of PPE as well as vaccines. Um, and another one is to um, uh, put more um, energy into developing treatments for COVID as well. Um, so, so hopefully that's positive and we will see tremendous movement uh, going forward. The other thing I'll say though is, you know, I'm not a parent, but I, my heart breaks for parents who are in an impossible position right now. Um, It has got to be so hard to go through an entire school year, especially with elementary and middle school aged children of helping them, not just helping them with their schoolwork and sitting through their courses with them, but um, watching watching them be away from their friends and watching if, you know, if they're, if they're children whose mental health is suffering, um, it, I mean, it's gotta be heartbreaking to watch your children go through that. And I, I think that is a narrative that we don't talk about enough and is something that early in the pandemic, we talked about a little bit about the burden on parents, but but we aren't talking about it as much anymore and it's only getting harder for them. Um, so I, uh, you're, you're not wrong. The science is right. This new strain is scary. And, and if you know, the early research indications are, are accurate um, that it poses a greater threat to children, um, then to your point, um, Robert, school districts need to know, teachers need to know, we need to make decisions, but but I also I also don't want to, you know, condemn especially progressive parents who who might be feeling like I I need maybe pr- protecting my children is getting them back in a classroom, and I'm not saying that's what I support, but I also don't want us to come off like we're villainizing parents who are feeling this way because they they probably are doing it because it's breaking their heart to to watch their children suffer and it it is. It is a complicated decision for a lot of families, and I feel for them. And, and well, well, before we go to Robert, I'm sorry, last thing I'll say is, I think this is also a failing of our care infrastructure. I'd be remiss if I didn't say this, right? Um, you know, we partner with national organizations who focus a lot on care and caregiving. And it is a it is a failure of our society that, that we have not supported family caregivers, um, especially parents who are who have children, school-aged children um, and, and younger in, in this pandemic. Look, the argument that it doesn't really transfer from schools is out the window. That's what Western Europe is showing and the data is showing with the new strain. That's number one. But number two, yeah, and I do want to speak truth to some progressive parents. I've heard some things about hysteria. Okay, I understand the concern and it's real and, and it's really affecting kids. The solution is not to make educators and support staff and school administrators cannon fodder. The solution is to make it safe and invest in caregiving and invest in the resources to continue these kids' education in the safest way possible. And we're not doing that. 
legislature is not feeling pressure on that at all and is not offering a damn thing. And so it is. And if we're going to say and it's not just that the, the kids will bring it back to their families and they're sacrificing their aunts and uncles and grandparents and anyone with pre-existing conditions. So it is deeply unethical. I understand why folks are triggered and emotional about their kids, but we need to get over it and say, what is keeping the kids out of education? It's not the teachers and the support staff. It is our unwillingness as a society to act like we did in World War II and do what is necessary and do it in a fact-based way. And that's what Joe Biden has talked about, and I hope we can move in that direction. But there should not be a choice. There shouldn't be. It's a false uh, premise, and I don't see you're saying that, Claire, but that's how some parents are thinking. And I know that based on I've heard amazingly emotional reactions where it can't be discussed in meetings with parents and, and, and school boards around the state. It can't even be brought up. They're so upset, and I understand why. It's their kids. But this is not me and just open unsafely with this now or with this new strain already in Wisconsin. Look, this is the reality of what happens when you have a completely inept federal response from soup to nuts and how this thing has been handled. Uh, it puts into perspective how important uh, the inauguration was. Uh, it, it, look, uh, Biden has made it very clear dealing with COVID is job one, is job two, it's job three. It sounds like immigration got on that list, but the, the reality is um, – We've had a, a horrendous plan. We've talked about it on the show a ton. And this is how it plays out. Claire, you laid it out beautifully. I've got kids. I, I'm fortunate mine's a senior in high school and, well, just lost essentially a senior year, right? Like um, it, 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 it's totally different. I, I'm looking at the reaction of the, our producer, Brian Wildridge. He perked up in this conversation because he's got kids and he's experiencing this too. And so Claire, you definitely hit on something. And that's what happens when you have a dysfunctional system. I mean, good Lord, there's been no resources to support parents and families and businesses and everybody uh, throughout this crisis, right? And so hopefully uh, that will change. Uh, but this was a beautiful discussion, but we got to take a break. Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. When we come back, we're going to be joined by the Monaco Brewing Company owner, Kirk Bankstad, and talk more about his super PAC and how uh, and what they've been up to. Very exciting news. Again, you're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are very fortunate to be joined by Kirk Bankstead. He is the owner of the Monaco Brewing Company, which just, well, I don't, I'll let him tell us when it was started, but has a new super PAC that has gotten a lot of attention for rightfully taking on the horrendous, uh, undemocratic actions of uh, Senator Ron Johnson and uh, Representative uh, Tiffany, Tom Tiffany, up in uh, the northern neck of the woods. Kirk, thanks for joining us uh, on the show today. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad you guys are doing what you do, especially in central and northern Wisconsin, where we don't have a lot of uh, uh, progressive love <laughs> up here. So I appreciate it. Hear you, hear you. And that sounds like partially why you started this pack, I believe, last year uh, was because, right, you're up in northern Wisconsin. Uh, let's be honest, a fairly Republican area. But, you know, uh, you feel like it's an area that we need to compete better in, I believe. Kirk, tell us more about that. 
Yeah. So, you know, it all, this whole thing's kind of started when, you know, I was running for assembly uh, against Rob Swearingen. I knew I was going to lose, but uh, I put my hat in the ring because they made us vote in April, um, uh, last the April spring elections. Uh, and we remember we were all locked down for the coronavirus and everybody was scared. And then all of a sudden uh, there was this, you know, the, the Republican legislature, majority legislature forced us to vote against Evers, you know, requests and begging that we do something, you know, by mail or delay it or something. And they, they made us vote. And it just infuriated me so much that I just called the Democratic Party office and I said, I don't care if I'm going to lose. Like, we got to hold these guys accountable for what they just did to us. So that was why I put my hat in the ring. And then, you know, slowly as, as I was running my brew pub all summer long, um, I could see the HEROES Act was passed by the uh, House Republicans or the House Democrats. It was made a political football. It wasn't even touched by Mitch McConnell for three months. Um, I knew that we weren't going to get a stimulus package that was going to help restaurants or brew pubs or breweries in Wisconsin. We weren't going to do it. And I knew that my tourism season was ending and it was going to get cold. And it's hard enough to... Uh, you know, to make ends meet in the wintertime up in the when the tourism's not really here in northern Wisconsin. And without any sort of a stimulus, uh, I, I just knew I would have to lay off all my employees. So I was really pissed off that um, we weren't going to that I'd have to lay off everybody because the government couldn't get its act together and stop playing politics with with small businesses lives, which is what they did with me. So so I got I went all in and I put a big Biden sign against, you know, hang, hung it on my uh, hung it on my the side of my building, which was in the, it's in the dead heart of Manaqua and Manaqua is about as red as it gets in Wisconsin. So uh, strong business decision, Kirk, very good decision. <laughs> Michael Jordan is your consultant, I believe. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, I mean, it pissed off the whole, I pissed off so many people in town, but I'm like, I, I got to stand for this because it's Trump and Mitch McConnell that really screwed my business up uh, and made me have to lay off my employees. So I'm going all in for Biden. That, that, that got a lot of news. And I was like, you know, listen, if I can get all this news for just hanging a Biden sign up, you know, and, and kind of sticking my neck out, you know, my, I sold $100,000 worth of T-shirts across the country because basically because I had to close down. I blamed those guys for it. And my, the Republican County Board uh, said I had to take my sign down or they'd find me because it like broke up like a, a size rule. I was like, screw that, man. That's not happening. So I sold, I said, let's raise some money so to pay my fines so I can keep my buying sign up. And instead of like raising 8,000 bucks, I raised a hundred thousand bucks. So <laughs> part of me was like, this is, this is bigger than just me. And it's bigger than the Monaco Brewing Company. It's just all this on all these small businesses and people thinking po politicians are screwing with them and don't care about us. So that was, uh, that was what, my, and so I knew, I, w I went to Costa Rica, I had to get out of Wisconsin, I had to forget about Wisconsin for a while after I got crushed in the assembly race, and so I went, you know, to, you know went, I went for away for a couple months, and while I was like out in the wilderness, I was like, you know, something got started here that was really cool, and I don't think I want to stop it, and so I uh, decided to start the Super PAC, where 5% of all my profits go to what I call dark money meant for good, and it was, awesome. before, <laughs> it was before it was before uh, be, before Tom Tiffany even voted to, uh, you know, he, he signed on with the Texas lawsuit against against Wisconsinites. Ron Johnson said the election was flawed and, and it was should go to Trump. These guys were saying that for two months, um, and, but they also voted against the stimulus package 
which which you know that's kind of been forgotten about because there's been this attack on our capital. But what happened before that uh, was they voted against the stimulus package to help restaurants, brew pubs, and breweries uh, survive right now. And yet again, they let us twist in the wind. And there's so many breweries, restaurants. You know, tap rooms are empty. People, beers just sitting in fermenters right now. There's, there's, we we need help. And these guys voted against it. So I was already starting this pack. It was I, I was going to launch it at the beginning of the year. And then all of a sudden, just because these guys are, are not for small business, you know, it wasn't really because they were traitors or seditionists at that point. It was because they're anti-small <laughs> business, you know. And I was like, this is a this is a bipartisan issue. Every I mean, small business is small business. You don't got to be a Democrat or Republican. But these guys are voting against us, you know, so. And then all of a sudden, January 6th hit and we had this insurrection in our capital. And and I had this super PAC meant for these guys, you know, these guys who perpetuated the lie uh, that Trump won the election, that people latched onto who were listening to QAnon. They that this lie, if, if it's perpetuated by our U.S. senator and by our congressman, it's more believable. And so people, you know. People took up arms and violence against our country directly because politicians like Tom Tiffany and Ron Johnson told them it was okay to do that. And that's why I put up this sign, you know, I was like, okay, well, we've raised, now we've raised a lot of money because everybody's so pissed at these guys that they're just, they're just donating money to me. They don't even know what I'm going to do with this money yet, but I'm saying just because they're the targets. I also targeted Rob, Rob Swearingen for being a rubber stamp against COVID in, a, in Wisconsin. He's our legislator. He's our state legislator. But we're focused on Tiffany and Johnson right now. And we made, you know, we've raised probably like now about $65,000 in about 12, 12 days uh, because people are, these guys are traitors to our country. And we put up these big signs on the major highways in central and northern Wisconsin that say they must resign. I had a lot better choice of words that was rejected by the sign company earlier, but those are the ones that they allowed us to put on. So, um, Robert, I, Robert, I know you have a question. So, Kirk, I think it's great what you're doing. Love your passion. That was a wonderful description of it. Thanks. By the way, people who know me know I, I'm a craft beer aficionado. I can prove it. There's my Monaco yeah! Brewing Company class. <laughs> All right, man. Uh, and can't wait for us to have government that fixes COVID so I can get back there and other great microbreweries around the state. By the way, my father's a writer on food and culture, and he's taught me that uh, oftentimes food is connected to democracy, especially food like beer, right? So I do think there's a connection there. And he loves this. He lives in Illinois, but he just loves what you're doing because this proves his thesis about the importance of at least people's food, not elite food. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you said something about I love the activism and you're taking it on and being a leader. That's what we need right now in this moment. You said something about disinvestment in the North Woods and North Central Wisconsin. This used to be David Obie territory. Uh, can you say a little bit about that? There's a lot of people, uh, we're in that school of thought, our national network, People's Action is, that we got to talk to everyone, that we start deciding we shouldn't talk to people and shouldn't be in certain areas because they're too red. That's part of the problem here. And, and that's why your leadership is critical to fill a void, but hopefully it sets a message that, we, that, that other folks who have money should not be abandoning the Northwoods and North Central Wisconsin. Yeah, I totally agree. So, I mean, 
The Democratic Party, Wisconsin, God bless them. You know, they got us 20 more thousand votes to get Biden elected. So, you know, I, I appreciate everything they're doing. But in the in the ever since Obi left this district um, and we've lost the first election when post Obi, uh, they've abandoned. Uh, they really don't. You know, they've abandoned central and northern Wisconsin. Um, and it's and they, they see the writing on the wall. They see that, you know, we're going to get crushed uh, up here in terms of anybody who's running uh, as, as on the Democratic Party. And so they're not putting much investment at all in this area. And, you know, when I believe it or not, I ran for Congress like for a, like a heartbeat uh, six years ago and against uh, Sean Duffy. And I saw and I, I, I dropped out of the race before the before the election because I saw how little Democrats, even nationwide and at the state level, cared about this area. So I, I said, there's no way, you know, this is going to happen. So so this is the reason I'm starting the super PAC. Like, I don't want to have to depend on money from the Democratic Party to to change things in central and northern Wisconsin. Uh, and if I can raise the money myself and, you know, and potentially partner with you guys and other progressive organizations like like I'll donate the money to whoever's doing the work on the ground. But if somehow I can be a symbol and people can donate for me from Madison and Milwaukee and New York and California because they see something that's cool, then that's great. I'm getting rich, progressive money from outside of the North, North Woods to change the North Woods. And that's what needs to happen. So um, that's that's my goal. And, you know, we'll see what happens. I think I, some, right now it's people are excited. They're excited about the beer. And um, hopefully we can raise more money for the pack. Well, Kirk. We really appreciate, first of all, that you ran for office, that you're getting involved, that you are putting 5% of your profits into trying to change your community. That's a, that's a real commitment. Um, and really appreciate the fact that you took some time out to come and uh, talk to our listeners about what you're doing. Um, we'll put a link on to how they can get involved and hook up with your uh, super PAC, but uh, on our website. Uh, Kirk, thanks so much for, uh, for what you're doing and for joining us. You're welcome. Appreciate it. And with that, folks, we got to take a break. Again, you're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin or Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. All right. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are very fortunate to have another guest with us. We've had Isaiah Holmes on before. Isaiah is a outstanding reporter with the Wisconsin Examiner, who, which we've talked about. We think they're an amazing uh uh, media source here in Wisconsin. Isaiah, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Look, we have Isaiah on because he is leading, he's doing a whole series on that follows local policing. It's been fantastic. Encourage you to check it out. But one of the key areas that Isaiah has been writing about, broke a big story last week, has been talking about it for a long time, is Wauwatosan. What's been going on with the Wauwatosa Police Department? Everybody knows the background. We've talked about what's been happening in Tosa. But in particular, Isaiah, you broke the story about how they have targeted the mayor and then also new news about targeting protesters. Isaiah, tell our listeners more. Of course. And uh, like you said, this was part of uh, our local policing series, which both me and my colleague Henry, Red uh, Henry Redmond um, are doing together. Uh, so in terms of the targeting of the mayor, uh, I filed several open records requests with the Wauwatosa Police Department over the last several months. Um, and as January came around, got uh, started to receive responses to some of those. A bunch of them were 
uh, interrelated with other media outlets, but the emails that that, uh, that showed that the PowerPoint where uh, the mayor had been placed on a high value target list were initially only sent to me. So what these emails showed, and I specifically requested emails within uh, the inboxes of, of officers who were part of WPD's special operations group. And this is a unit that specializes in covert surveillance and cell phone data extraction. And they're supposed to do things like armed robbery investigations, OD investigations, vice, things like that. It seems like they've been really honed in on the protesters over this time. So this PowerPoint um, was an investigative PowerPoint, which was uh, sent from a SOG, Special Operations Group detective, to uh, a supervisor in their investigative division, which has other detectives and things like that. And the PowerPoint slide uh, had to do with the incident that occurred at uh, Officer Joseph Mensa's house in August. And it identified uh, four uh, high value targets, uh, one of whom was uh, Mayor Dennis McBride. And uh, he was identified as a high value target. His PowerPoint slide specifically said that he had sanctioned, uh, allegedly sanctioned violence against uh, Joseph Mensa. Uh, it mentioned the Q&A sessions and the meeting, the private meetings he had had with uh, protesters, with lawyer Kimberly Motley and uh, others. And just for the record, he had also had those private meetings with Chief Barry Weber. This was not an unusual thing for Mayor McBride to do. He's the mayor. Uh, and then, la and then uh, the last, bullet point on there, it said no PC for probable cause for uh, involvement in the Mensa shooting dot 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 yet. So when I showed that to the mayor, he was pretty shocked. And uh, he, I guess, went to city officials like Barry Weber, who said that he knew nothing about it and an internal investigation is happening. Isaiah, this is great work. Your work, the work of Henry Redman, the, the other journalist at Wisconsin Examiner, and great to have Wisconsin Examiner to have both of you and other great reporters on that staff. And this is real investigative reporting. It's what's leaving journalism because of the cuts in metro for-profit newspapers, but it's nonprofits like Wisconsin Examiner that are the future and are growing. And it just seems to me, and I know you've been very fact-based in what you've been describing, and you've covered the whole Wauwatosa protest movement uh, uh, over the summer, soup to nuts. You've covered a lot of interesting things. Uh, but on this, it really makes the police seem like some private security force or uh, a gang, even though they're public employees and they have so much power, they feel impunity. They can target people who are peaceful protesters who are doing the most fundamentally American thing you can do because that's what founded the country is protest, right? Mm. And target the mayor, right, of the city and, 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 and are untouchable. And so it's just really scary we, we, that we, it, how do we, it, it's gonna be really hard to correct this, that, that they would even think this is reasonable to use public resources designed for, uh, you know, investigating uh, violent criminals, right, and kind of FBI-like capacities on protesters and think that they can just treat them as the enemy. It's just stunning. I don't know. I know you're a journalist. You want to be uh, fact-based, Isaiah, but have you been surprised by what you've learned in Wauwatosa? I mean, you're, you're an African-American man. You've experienced a lot in your life, but how shocked are you? Or are you just know this is how it works and you're, and you're finding what you expected? Part of me wasn't shocked because I'm familiar with how far the Wauwatosa Police Department will go for sometimes 
what people would consider otherwise, a, you know, innocuous things. But um, part of me was was surprised at how over the course of these protests, it just seems like the aggression and the tactics had no end. You know, first it was the marked car shadowing, then it was the black cars. Now they're taking pictures of people, including me. Now they're saying my name and other people's names in the protests. Now there's a list. Now there's more lists. What's at the end of that list? Who knows? Who's on the list? Who knows? So it, it, it yeah, so part of me was, yeah, so part of me was and part of me wasn't, but I, but I think that uh, a big issue right now is that the city of Wauwatosa and people in Wauwatosa really need to, uh, really need to face reality and, and, and face kind of their issues right now, whether that's a police department that acts like a dictatorship in a way, or it's teenagers who have drug addiction issues. These issues really need to be talked about and 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 faced. And right now, we're, uh, we we just had a a, a Wauwatosa Police and Fire Commission meeting that did not, uh, to my knowledge, talk about the uh, internal investigation that's allegedly launched and etc. And by the way, the police chief saying that he he didn't know about the uh, PowerPoint being made. You know, you would imagine that since the Wauwatosa Police Department was investigating the incident the incident at Mensa's house, that that was a very important investigation. And there aren't that many, there's 90 or so officers uh, with the Wauwatosa Police Department. Uh, there's only a couple captains and several lieutenants. And with the investigative division, when you look at their annual reports, there's actually a pretty clear and easy chain of command between the supervisor who has sent this PowerPoint and the chief. So you got to wonder, okay, well, who's doing the internal investigation? Did the PowerPoint make it up to the patrol division captain who oversee, who's the head of that lieutenant? And if so, then is the chief doing his own, uh, doing the investigation or is that captain? What's happening? And Police Chief Weber has shown in the past with Joseph Mensa, not only with the three police shootings, but also the other uh, uh, issues which which were uh, discovered later on with the squad crashes and also with Officer Olson who punched the teenager in the face and made for them all. There are officers who have these recurring issues and then it seems like in the department there's all these excuses made as to why it's not really a problem. So what is going to be the discipline, quote unquote, the mayor promised us with the internal investigation is, is, is a few SOG officers going to have to go home with pay for a week? You know, so people in Wauwatosa really need to kind of front these things. So Isaiah, look, I think this story highlights exactly what you just brought up. I mean, we were talking about, we didn't think the mayor was responding at all. Like we thought in many ways he was extraordinarily passive when this stuff was going on. So like the idea that they would see him as a threat is shocking, like to us, not that the police would overreach, uh, as you say, uh, but the way this was handled, uh, given uh, McBride seemed to be hardly someone who was like a rallying advocate of, of protesters. So um, that's what your story really shows. Who's in charge? This is complete rogue. Like there is no one in charge. The mayor doesn't seem to have control. The city council does. The people clearly don't. Um, Isaiah, before you go, I, I need to get you to quickly let our listeners know about and we're because we're going to talk more about this with our next guest 
what just happened in Milwaukee, in the city of Milwaukee, which is another really important news related to policing. Uh, the city of Milwaukee had very, uh, to much fanfare, and we had talked about it, thought it was very important historic move that they had rejected uh, federal uh, funding for additional police. That was reversed uh, this past week, is my understanding. Yeah, sure. So, uh... So the city of Milwaukee just kind of did this kind of back and forth with the cop, with the federal comp, uh, cops grant, which would have added uh, more personnel to the, uh, to, the, to the Milwaukee Police Department. And, and right now, uh, from what I'm hearing from community activists and community organizers on the ground, it's, it's really bothering them because it, uh, it seems like there uh, their calls to kind of reallocate and rethink how, how community services should work aren't being heard. And it seems like uh, and especially, I just came from the South Side uh, uh, the other day at a demonstration, um, talking to people who uh, were saying, you know, uh, when Operation Legend was happening, we could see the activity, we could see the federal activity in our neighborhoods, we could see the blacked out cars. It's, it's scary, and and uh, it uh, makes one wonder. Yeah, it 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 seemed it's really unfortunate that that occurred, but you know, it seems like the fight continues, and uh, people aren't deterred. People are still pounding pavement out there. Well, Isaiah, we got to roll. Thank you. Yes, we're going to be joined in the very next segment by Marquesa Tucker from the African-American Roundtable. But you're listening to Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're really fortunate to to be joined by Marquesa Tucker. She is the executive director of the African-American Roundtable. They have been very active here in uh, Milwaukee for a number of years and have been uh, a leading uh, advocates around uh, police accountability. Marquesa, thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. So before the break, we had Isaiah Holmes on and he uh, previewed this, that the city overturned and changed their position on some federal resources uh, for additional police officers. I uh, wanted to get uh, your the, the tables, the African-American Roundtable's thoughts and responses to this and then you know, any, anything that for our listeners who, who feel similarly uh, that they might be able to do uh, f- following this? Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity to share. So um, this is something that the Common Council has was battling through all last year, but we know after um, 2019's Liberate MKE's win, um, the Fed said that they were going to be sending this money in, like Isaiah said, through Oper- Operation Legend, really in regards to, um, I think it was really around like the, the speeding whatever we are calling it. Um, But the money was gonna be used to uh, bring in more officers. Um, And so all throughout last year, while, you know, there's unrest, George Floyd's murder, Breonna Taylor, this conversation is coming up for Common Council. The Liberate MKE campaign launched in 2019, um, demanding a divestment of 25 million. And last year we upped it to 75 million. So they had a lot of things to really consider about this federal money. And so uh, they decided at the end of the year that they weren't going to accept it. They voted a big fat no. Um, Alderwoman Shantia Lewis abstained from the vote um, and who else voted? I think, I don't remember who all voted but I know she was the only one who abstained. And what ended up happening during that common council meeting, um, Alderman Hamilton brought a resolution saying, hey, you know, can we get the police to say, if you know, we accept this money, you guys will do X, Y, and Z. And this was when, um, who was the last chief? You know, we have so many chiefs right now. Um, the one who Mor- was- Morales. No, not Morales, the one oh, who came I'm- after him. <laughs> 
I forgot his name, but he was an interim after Morales left. He was like the second in command. I forgot his name, but he pretty much was saying like, we can't agree to these terms and this new resolution. And it was pretty much them saying like, we're, we're not going to be held accountable to whatever it is that you're trying to hold us accountable to. And so ultimately, again, they voted no. And then during the common council meeting, <laughs> Alderwoman died, brings it back to life. And literally says, you know, hey, I like to put this back on the table. I want to talk about it again in January. And so we were just stunned. But we do celebrate that, you know, this hasn't happened, I don't believe, around the country where a common council actually rejected the money. Now, what's really unfortunate, of course, is what happened earlier this week when they decided that they would keep the money. And so the conversation on Tuesday was Alderman Hamilton. Um, went to now the the next new interim police chief. So now there's another one versus the one that was in December and just talked about this resolution, you know, the things that they would expect from them, um, you know, some reform ideas and how they work together with the Common Council to be accountable and to do these things. And so once he got an agreement from this interim new police chief who may not, I think his name is Norma, who may not even be around you know, for the rest of the year or however long, depending on what the Fire and Police Commission does, which is, you know, also up in, in smoke. Uh, they decided based on those things and Shantia decided to chime in and agree, oh yeah, I think that because we have some cooperation from the police and who say they'll do this thing, yes, I think like this is a good idea. Dodd talked about uh, new administration, you know, in the White House, as if that means anything locally, what's going to happen here. Granted, yeah, it's Fed money, but we can't wait for the feds to come in and save us. Uh, well, maybe they'll say that the COPS grant can be used 15, you know, for 15 new officers, but like 15, like public health, you know, people, you know, we can't, we can't depend on hopes and dreams when it comes to the, the federal government or the DOJ or police. Like we can't go off of these conversations that we've had years and years and years and still black people are being murdered by police. I don't care what you put into place as long as the system of policing is still in place. This is what's going to happen. And so very unfortunate. They revoted. Um, and Alderwoman died, changed her vote to yes, Alderman Hamilton. Um, I don't remember if he voted yes last time or not, but either way it goes, it went through. Um, but the, yeah, the three people that did change their vote was Hamilton, died, and Lewis. Yes, I do know that for sure, because that's the, the social media posts that we put up. So they're going to get $9.7 million to hire 30 more cops um, for three years. And after that, we're stuck with paying their salaries, along with all the misconduct cases, which are like 35 million, and along with the police pensions that will be, we'll have to pay out. And as we're telling people, like this city could ultimately be bankrupt, honestly. So what do you, you know, I agree with you. I, we, we thought this was pretty historic when they made that vote. And so this, this change is disappointing. What do you tell folks, our listeners, people who've been involved uh, in the activities over the last year, what should they do? What are you What are you calling for people to do? Um, and more importantly, how can they also get involved with the effort of the African American Roundtable in the fight for justice on this on policing? 
Absolutely. So one thing that we're continuing to do is let's have conversations in our community to identify existing uh, community safety strategies. So we would like to do some asset mapping this year. If anyone's interested in helping us around that um, adventure, you know, what is keeping our people safe already in the city? Things that people are not thinking about, you know, we're thinking about, you know, youth engagement opportunities and organizations and agencies, you know, um, sexual assault uh, support agencies. We have to lift up what is working so people don't keep going back to police. And we have to continue having conversations with people in our community and ask them the root of the question. We worked with Block for the last two years when they've been in the neighborhoods just asking people, what does safety look like to you? And when we talk to people, they talk about jobs, they talk about green space, clean air, clean water, good education, access to healthcare. No one says police. <laughs> and so we have to have the conversation with our communities to really lift up what it is they need so so that when they do talk to their alders they're not saying oh yeah we need police because we already know that there's no there's nothing no studies that anybody can find or data that more police equals um, more safety. We, we can't find that. So we have to be able to have conversations and even inviting people to have conversations in their own families, in their own communities. Ask people what is it that they really want. Um, and then another thing, we need to organize in districts where the other people are not recognizing what the loudest part of the community is speaking. Now, I understand that some people are, are calling their alders, you know, and saying, hey, we still need police. And again, those are areas where we feel like we still need to have more conversations with people to help them really understand and to speak what it is they really need. But we're looking to organize in those areas. So it's like, you know, who knows of any community organizations and agencies that are in uh, Shantia's district and that are in Dye's district. One thing that we do know is that in Nakia Dye's district, she has tons of police officers in her district. So we understand the pressure, but again, our voices we know over the last two years during the budget hearings have been the loudest. I, I, can't, I can't say I know what's in their inboxes and in their emails and who's called them, but I know who's been verbally the loudest out of the community. And that's been people who have been asking for defundment of the police. So if folks uh, want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to uh, get, get in touch and get involved? Absolutely. They can email us at, email us at liberatemke at gmail.com. Um, they can also visit our website, liberatemke.org, and sign up to receive updates on the work that we will be doing. We'll be reintroducing um, our campaign um, in probably the next couple months and starting up some new coalition meetings. So if folks are interested in being a part of those coalition meetings, again, please go on the website, liberatemke.org and sign up for updates. Marquesa, thank you so much. Thanks for us even being in the position of having this conversation. It's because of the years of organizing of a lot of folks that even made uh, the first rejection of this possible. And there will we will make progress, uh, but it takes the work that you said. So please, folks, reach out to Marquesa and Liberate Milwaukee. Thank you so much, Marquesa. Thank you all. Take care. Have a good day. Thanks, folks. And with Bye. that, we got to wrap up this battleground, Wisconsin. Uh, we want to thank all of our guests. Wow, we had a lot of them. Marquesa Tucker from the uh, African-American Roundtable, uh, Isaiah Holmes, the amazing journalist over at the Wisconsin Examiner, and Kirk Bankstead who is running the new Super PAC at Minocqua Brewing Company. Of course, want to thank our producer, Brian Wildridge, who makes this happen every week. And we'll see you next week at the Battleground, Wisconsin.